0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little show, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to Patreon.com/slash Oak Island to learn more. Alright, hope everybody's doing great out there. Before we begin the show, I just want to thank Ginger for joining our Patreon this week. Now, Ginger is a friend of the show. She has been for quite some time now, and it is really awesome to have her as a patron now, too. Don't forget, Ginger, come and join us. And you know this already, but just for a reminder for all the other patrons out there, you can join us for a live discussion that goes on in the post section of the Patreon page during each airing, each U.S. airing of a new episode of the curse of Oak Island. We're in there commenting. Steve is always giving him <laughs> funny little things as well as many other people who join us each week. It's my favorite part of doing this whole Patreon thing for sure. Uh, and also the rest of the post section, I'm kind of turning into a patron, uh, Oak Island blog. And, uh, I'm kind of putting some old research in that now, but I think as the future goes on here, uh, that I'll, I'll turn into some more kind of original content, kind of blogging content, stuff for you to read, maybe add some uh, small audio pieces like miniature podcasts or something during the off season too. Uh, we'll see how that develops as we go. And if you're, you're a patron, you have some ideas out there of what I can uh, deliver there as patron content, uh, just, uh, just drop me a line. Just send me a message through the Patreon and we can discuss that. Okay. Oh, and before I forget, Ginger, thank you for joining the Patreon, Um, and thank you so much for all your support over the years. It's really been great having you as part of the Diggin' Oak Island family. Okay, it's time to answer your questions and comments from this week. Uh, We got one long one at the end. We only got a couple here, but they're all three, three good ones, three long ones too. So we got a lot of work to get to here. So let's get right into it, and we're going to start off with another incredibly well-named listener, and a new listener at that. Here is Dave, great name Dave, who writes, "Hi, Dave, uh, just found your podcast and been enjoying it. Just my two cents or less. I'm a treasure skeptic, but I also enjoy the archaeology archaeology angle of Oak Island. I think the dry dock theory is plausible, i.e., Occam's Razor: the simplest explanation is likely right. And all the endless show repetition. Has anyone ever seen Surveyor George Bates's 1970 work mentioned?" I mention Mr. Bates because Googling the dry dock theory also brings up Doug Kroll's name, yet I don't believe the subject has been addressed on the show. Uh, Doug used to write a uh, – be part of a blog from the Blockhouse or something like that it was called. I've got a lot of – read it a lot over the years. Um, so he has expressed a lot of interest in other theories besides what you see. That's absolutely for sure. Um Anyway, let me go back to Dave's email here. He, he writes in that George Bates' maps are mentioned here, and he gives a link. I'll put that link on the Facebook page for us. Uh, and then he continues, Mr. Bates' work details a dry dock pumping system that could explain the drains, shafts, and tunnels. His diagrams show upper and lower chambers, gravity drains to the sea, and an inlet from Smith's Cove. His idea of a windmill powering the pump could be supplanted by oxen powering the same machinery. An explanation for all the ox shoes found? Could it be? (laughs) I think the overall picture shows Oak Island as a naval repair depot used by various entities over the years. I'm just adding a non-original idea to the endless pile of theories, looking forward to hearing um, anymore, All the best, Dave. Uh, great stuff, Dave. Um, the Bates theory and the maps he made to accompany those theories are certainly, I'm pretty sure, are not a subject that we've discussed here on the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. So let's remedy that right now, shall we? Uh, George Bates was a surveyor. He was from Nova Scotia. I think he first came back to the island, came to the island all the way back in the 1930s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And when I first read your email, Dave, um, I recalled in the back of my mind a quote of his that I couldn't quite remember. (laughs) So I started digging through some of my old books here on my shelf, my Oak Island books, and and I found actually what I was looking for in Darcy O'Connor's book, The Secret Treasure of Oak Island, where Bates says, quote, I had always asked myself, if it's not treasure down there, what else could it be? Then one day it hit me the first shipyard in North America, maybe a dry dock or ship repair base, end quote. So Bates's theory, and he was also a cartographer, I think, so that's why he drew the kind of elaborate maps that Dave mentions to go along with this theory. Um, his theory was Oak Island, well, Smith's Cove more precisely, really, was essentially a dry dock built by the French in I think the 1600s or so when they ruled over Nova Scotia, right? When Nova Scotia was part of French territory. Now, without getting too much into the weeds of how this all worked, because it was pretty elaborate, what Bates was pretty much saying was that everything we see on Oak Island, and by that I mean like the workings of the money pit, the box drains, all the stuffs and you uh, that we've seen in Smith's Cove, like the U-shaped structure and all that kind of stuff, uh, were all parts of an elaborate ship repair system, which enabled the French to bring the ship into the cove and then kind of drain the water from the cove, allowing them to make repairs below the waterline. So I think the best way I can say this is that the money pit was like some sort of gravity activated drainage tank, right? Where all the money or all the all the water would go into the money pit. And then there was this theory of wind powered pumps to bring the water back in. Um, and, the, you know, and the box drains were really just the means to get the water in and out of the cove and into this tank. And then I suppose there was some sort of seawall of some kind. I guess that was the U-shaped structure or those kind of things. Now, listen. This is a fascinating theory, but there are quite a few problems with this theory, but I'm only going to mention just two that come to mind. Uh, One, uh, there are way easier ways to repair the bottom of a ship than to create a system of draining a cove that requires the digging of a 100-foot deep drainage tank and an even more elaborate and incredibly difficult to build drainage system to go along with it. But the other thing is, Why would such a repair facility been completely lost to history? I mean, why would it be secret or clandestine and how could it be? I mean, if true, this would have been an extremely expensive and complicated, almost engineering marvel, right? What would be the purpose of hiding it so completely? You got to have that part of your theory or the theory just doesn't make sense because there are no records of any such facility being built in Nova Scotia and no mentions at all in the local history of such a thing. I mean, there's nothing. So, I mean, I don't think that makes the theory invalid, I mean, because we're discovering new things in history all the time, right? But it does make me question it and make me think that maybe it's just sort of the, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's somebody coming up with an idea and then placing evidence into that idea rather than using the evidence to lead what his idea might be. Uh, That's kind of the only way I put it. Anyway, fantastic email, Dave. Any chance I get to dive deeper into one of these sort of lesser-known theories is an opportunity I never pass up. Thank you for that. Welcome to the podcast. Please keep listening. Please write us again. Okay, let's go now to a listener named Sarah who writes, Hi Dave, writing in again after watching Season 9, Episode 19 in Canada and listening to your podcast this morning. I have to say, I'm much more calm since the last time I wrote in when the team was upset about the Mi'kmaq Pottery – find limiting their search anyways the reason i write this in this time is to share a accumulation of ideas that could explain many anomalies on and off the island the idea of a shipwreck near frog island seems much more plausible an idea than many other theories we've heard over the years the waves have carried coconut fibers from shipwreck in smith's cove and perhaps were not placed there on purpose as a drainage system We know how much things moved around in the water given the 1715 fleet's treasure on Florida's coastline. Yes, we we do know that. You can look that up if you don't understand what she means. But uh, stuff that goes to the bottom of the ocean hardly ever stays there, especially light things like coconut fiber. The ice holes on the south side of the island could just be a natural rock formation from the east limestone drumlin. Because, you know, limestone holes. We know water came to these ice holes from Dan Blankenship's work in 10X. Which means these tunnels could basically be giant bathtub drains sucking things in and out of the entire ocean into parts of the East Limestone Drumlin as the water rises and falls. Taking with it, I don't know, let's say things such as tiny pieces of parchment, maybe small bones, etc. Finally, the original money pit itself. What is to say that it was not the original or first cave-in pit on the East Drumlin? That Sophia Sellers was not the first to experience such a phenomenon? That people were on the island, the army, shipwrecked folk, etc., sought to reinforce a sinkhole that suddenly appeared while they sought refuge from their sort? I don't know. I love the show and I love Oak Island. But year after year, with nothing of substance really being found or the very, very little of it actually being found, I'm starting to seriously consider other explanations. Sorry for the super long email. Let's hope I eat my words when season nine finale rolls around. Best, Sarah. Sarah, first of all, your email is not nearly the longest of today. We're going to get to that one next. Um, I love some of your ideas. They're popular ideas and certainly something worth talking about. I I, I, I think a shipwreck uh, is a good explanation for the coconut fiber, uh, for sure, but um, because so many ships carried coconut fiber, especially ships that were doing what was happening in in those days, which was transporting goods to and from Europe and coming very close to Nova Scotia as they took that route. Um, so I, I, I could definitely see that as part of the explanation for it. I mean, it does seem a little... Convenient <laughs> that it happened to, <laughs> to, to, to wash up on Oak Island when all this stuff is there. But be that as it may, it is an explanation and a decent one. Uh, here's the thing, though. In order for me to erase all of this, all of these things, and call this all just a misunderstanding of natural phenomenon or of evidence that we're seeing, The problem with that idea and the reason why I haven't done that is because we also then need to put a lot of stuff found and recorded and claimed over the years on Oak Island into a category of something like blatant lies, right? Things like uh, pieces of gold chain, uh, the 90-foot stone, which many, many people, I question that all the time, but many people claim to have seen it. Things like that you know, and so on and so on. We have to just assume those were all lies or, or misunderstandings or something like that. And I'm just not willing to do that yet. But the operative word there is yet. I can always be convinced. Great stuff, Sarah. Thank you so much for writing. All right. We got, like I said, not many letters, but big ones. Here is a very long one from a very old friend of ours, Jock. Uh, who always has great stuff for us. And like I said, he's got a long one here. So let's get right into it, and I'll stop as we go along. He writes, Hi, Dave. Thanks for all your dedicated work. I've been mentally composing you a note for months as my frustration with the show increases. I realize when I put this little note together, it takes a bit of organization and time. So your work is greatly appreciated. Lately, I've been listening to your podcast before the show is broadcast on Canadian TV on Sunday night. Uh, Yes, I am cheating, and spoiler alert, warnings are ignored. (laughs) At the beginning of this season, with all the hype about gold in the water, I thought I would quickly do a bit of research. Google gold in Nova Scotia. By the way, I cannot believe that two geologists stuck their necks out that much and had it documented on TV. I would have been more careful and added a few disclaimers. Truckloads? I've been waiting all year for that treasure, as we all are. Problem is, all of them are getting gold fever. Even Krista Brousseau is becoming an archaeologist by her comments on that seal. Everyone is becoming an expert. I note on last night's show, Dr. Spooner was there, but no comments. Lots of big smiley snapshots of Rick in the previews and Gary doing his today's the day and gold and silver in the next scoop hype. It drives me crazy. I do not think... They hit the mother load this year because if they did, it would be impossible to keep the rumors from flying off the island. How many people are on that island, cast and crew and others? New people crop up every week on the show and one on the Drilling Down, one of the Drilling Down shows had a feature on the show's personnel. Lots of bo- best boys, grips, camera operators and producers. OK, I'm going to stop here. Um, yes, absolutely true, Jock. Uh, That is the problem. That is why I don't buy conspiracy theories about they've discovered it already or whatever it might be. And they're just holding. The best one is they're just holding on to the discovery of what they actually found until uh, this show is going to end as if that's even possible. I mean, you have hundreds of people involved here who have to be in on that little ruse. One of those people have to have a little bit of respect for what they do and wouldn't be in on such a thing. It's just it's just there's just too much so you're 100% right about that if they find a treasure the idea of them being able to successfully hide that for what for the better part of a year when you think about it is uh you know 8 months or whatever it ends up being is going to be very very difficult okay he continues as you know i've been a geologist for 40 years mostly in petroleum I am in the Gordon Fader, Joy Steele camps. So sad she passed away. I did not know that until you mentioned it. Your comments on their book and research have never been mentioned. Um, it is obvious since their ideas do not support treasure, and uh, actually go against that idea. I think I'm going to stop here again. I think you meant the the comments on the, on why their book and research have never. You, you write your comments on why their book and research has never been mentioned. Um, I think you've hit it because it doesn't support treasure uh, and actually goes against those ideas and is a pretty well-learned answer. I, I think that still needs to be mentioned, but um, I'm going to mention this again later in the show. Uh, this is not documentary. This is reality television, and there is a difference. Anyway, Jock continues. Back to the gold. I'm including a link on the Gold River, and I'll put that link in our uh, in our Facebook page for you. Gold River is about two miles to the north of Oak Island. As you note from this link, Gold River was called Gould River and then got changed to Gold River after they discovered gold there. It produced 7,610 ounces of gold from 1881 to 1940. That is a small deposit worth about $15 today. With the 1881 discovery, digging tools would be readily available at the uh, local hardware stores gearing up for the mini gold rush two miles away. Also note in that article mercury was used in the old days to extract gold from the cuttings. They crush the rock as the gold is finally dispersed within veins or flecks. The mercury is used to separate the gold, and mercury could end up being mixed in with the spoils as a contaminant, and up to 10 to 15 or 10 to 25% could be mixed in the gold. Shakespeare's documents were encased in mercury, but not even going to go there. <laughs> And I'm not speculating that Oak Island was a gold mining operation. The map below is from I, and I'll Again, I'll include that in the Facebook page. I've taken that map and expanded the Mahome Bay area with gold deposits as shown. Note Oak Island is surrounded by gold deposits, all within a couple of miles. In one of your last podcasts, one of your listeners mentioned the Gold River. I think you were slightly shocked that the producers did not mention historic gold mining in the area. I think that Marty did mention that natural occurring gold was not in the well water. But, of course, that discussion was not brought up. If I was an investor being solicited for for millions of dollars to invest in a gold treasure play based on water chemistry and was not told that there was natural gold deposit nearby, I would be very mad. If that was not disclosed at the very beginning, if it was disclosed, I would have to be convinced how do you tell the difference between gold coins and gold nuggets dissolved in water would gold coins dissolve in a couple of hundred years more likely in a natural gold deposit would dissolve in thousands hundreds of thousands perhaps if we had the technology to find gold that easy everyone would do it and the price of gold would drop okay let me stop again here uh, like i said this is a long email so let's let's get let's go through it all here a bit by bit right so jock You've pretty much articulated my thoughts exactly, or at least you're asking the same questions that I've been asking, but you did so in a much better fashion than I ever could. Those are the questions I have about this gold deposit. Uh, It is a little strange that we haven't seen much more on it, and we're going to mention it again here this week uh, for the first time in some time, other than to say the gold was tested here. There hasn't been much follow-up on that gold, and I'm going to mention that again. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, As an expert in the field yourself, I would say that your concerns here in these uh, questions carry a lot more weight than mine ever could. So thank you for that. Um, Anyway, Jock continues. Next topic, uh, glaciation and the distribution of gold. Nova Scotia experienced at least four glaciations from 75,000 to 10,000 years ago. Those are actually ancient. Uh, That is where a kilometer-thick ice sheet covered Canada's maritime region. All the weight of that ice scrapes and sculpts the land. It redistributes the rocks. The gold-bearing rocks in Nova Scotia are very old, 580 to 340 million years old. Cambrian and Carboniferous in the Maguma trend, which are granites. Look at the map again and note how many gold areas there are in Nova Scotia. These gold-bearing rocks lie to the north and northeast of Oak Island, fully exposed, scraped by the glaciers, but now underneath a layer of glacial till. I actually expect that these gold-bearing rocks may lie underneath the glacial till and limestone, dolomite, and anhydrites of Oak Island. As the glaciers moved south over Oak Island, I can imagine that massive weight of glaciers moving and dragging gold-bearing maguma rocks, maguma rocks, I don't know how you say that, over the area, so it would not surprise me that some of those gold-bearing rocks are the subsurface and glacial till of Oak Island. Not enough uh, to make a mine, but enough to alter the water chemistry. Any other experts out there who can mention? Oh, geez. I hope so. Jock, because I got to tell you, I'm only following about half of what you're saying here. That's pretty much why you hardly never hear me talk about the geological side of all this. I just don't understand what you're talking about. I mean, I kind of get it. I get the, the concept, but I don't know these terms you're using. Anyway, Jock continues. We all get mad at Clotworthy. We get upset with the producers of the show. But at the end of the show, every week, a list of credits includes the History Channel executives as all as executive producers, Uh, Mark, Rick, Craig, uh, Alan, uh, the associate producers, Jack, Peter, David, Alex. They must have some say, I think by Mark, you might have meant Marty. They must have some say in the content of the weekly show. I think I would be embarrassed by some of the bold statements made by the narration if I had my name in the credits. In the future, they might have to live with that hype. Some of those bold statements are exaggerations of the truth, or some would classify them as lies. There is, however, a little statement by Clotworthy at the end of each show, quote, will they finally realize their dream or the manifestation of a deadly curse? Maybe that is their disclaimer. Okay, I'm going to stop again, Jack. Um, give me a lot of work here, man. Uh, this is something many people point out. Uh, I've done that too. Uh, m- many of the fellowship. Are listed as producers of one kind or another. And lots of fans then ask the same thing you're asking here, Jock. Something like, uh, don't they have some say in the final content of the show? Why would they allow this or that to go to air? And like I said, I've been guilty of making that same assumption too, but the fact is we really don't know, do we? Anyway... (laughs) Like I said, this is a long one, uh, but I I just want, so I'll get right back into it. But we really don't know what kind of deal they have, what kind of say they have, what the whole purpose of that is. I can't imagine all of those guys in their contract have some sort of final say and some sort of editing capability over the narration. That just doesn't make any sense. I, I just don't think that's the relationship, but I don't know. Okay. Now, the rest of Jock's email, he copies uh, comments on a couple of different topics, so we're going to get through them quickly here, and I'll do my best to interject. He writes, one, last night's show, as they drag out, and he means last week, as they drag out this last well, claim that in the meantime, Rick and the gang meet to plan search for shipwrecks. Clearly, they're in T-shirts and the fall changing of the leaves color of the leaves are not present. So many of these silly, misleading comments are making me skeptical of how they are telling this hunt. How credible is this show? Okay, Jock, this has been talked about a lot because everybody noticed this, right? So you give me an opportunity to com- to comment here. What I would say is I don't think we need to always confuse credibility with editing choices. Those two can be two different things. Again, I've mentioned this before, but let me Drive it home here. We have to remember this is a television show. It is an entertainment show. It is not a documentary educational presentation. And we need to know that. It's reality television for sure. But we all have known now over these last couple of decades when reality television became so big, we all know now that reality TV and documentary TV are two very different things. My advice is this. Let that stuff go, unless it somehow reflects on the content of what they're actually finding or on the theories they're presenting to us. Let it go. And with regards to this specific incident that you're talking about, I would imagine the huge bulk of work done on the island once the rock team showed up with their caissons and their oscillators, most of that work done was done almost entirely over at the money pit. All of their resources, all of their resources over there, and there really wasn't much else going on on the island during those same weeks. So my assumption here is the editors made a choice to sprinkle in some of the other stuff that was done earlier in the year in with these last few episodes in an effort just to kind of keep it more engaging and more, uh, you know, give us a little a variation of what we're looking at rather than just guys staring at a caisson going down and a hammer grab coming up. Just kind of make it more engaging. I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, so I I, I can't, not I do I don't use that to impugn their credibility. Back to Jock, his next point. How much dirt have they sifted through to find virtually nothing? I'm trying to imagine how much dirt is in each of those drill holes. I assume each of the first two canisters were totally empty of treasure. I live in a 12-floor condo building, so I imagine it this way. The 10-foot can would take over my bedroom and would engulf my queen-size bed. I'm roughly 130 feet in the air, so I can roughly imagine drilling 150 feet into the ground. That is a lot of Billy Gerhardt dump trucks full of dirt. Take all that dirt and throw throw it on a separating table. This is a lot of dirt with no gold coins in it. Then he says three, are they refilling the canisters? I think they are filling the holes back up. I think I saw that on the TV show. So I expect they are putting the spoils back in without any further research on them. Am I correct? I'm totally surprised they have not found any more indigenous stuff. That is another complaint about the show. Let me stop here. Yes, they are filling the cans back in, Jock. With what? I don't know. Anyway, he continues. So how do I see the show ending this season? They'll find something else to take our mind off the third can. They'll find something in that last can that will be a nail-biting cliffhanger. Watched it last night, and yes, they are going going out looking for shipwrecks. Google shipwrecks in Nova Scotia, and you'll see they have 5,000 documented with probably more like 25,000 possible. Just wait. The magnetometer will show something big, probably a boiler on a sunken ship. They then will make us all wait the full summer for the mind-blowing season 10 opener, Fizzle out for the rest of the season, then another cliffhanger, then season 11 opener. This is why they call it the Curse of Oak Island. My wife is getting mad at me. Seinfeld lasted nine seasons and they're still talked about with respect, even though I thought the last episode was a bust. You have to be careful about drawing this out too long. Dave, you can dig in your East Coast backyard and find old things and make a TV show out of it. All the best for now. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Jock in Vancouver. Jock. What an email. Uh, it was like almost an entire show there for your email. I, I have mentioned already that I think the show is getting dangerously close to the point where it can't go on too much longer this way. Um, and it might be only a change in the maybe the current formula, what their, their subject matters, that kind of stuff. Oh, I mean, a, a big discovery will also help, I guess. Um, but something's got to change the path that they seem to be on. Listen, I hope this show never ends, but that's not very realistic now, is it? Uh, anyway, um, you know, I, I think that I think I'm with you. Some, something's got to give here because this formula over the last three or four years, I think, is uh, making more complaints out of viewers and fans than the previous seasons. Anyway. That was one marathon email, my friend. Great stuff. Thank you for taking the time to write all that. Um, I'm, I'm really flattered by you giving it that much thought and uh, giving us so much to talk about. That's all for the emails this week. If you have any comments or questions for me that you would like discussed on a future podcast, just email me at island at gmail.com. All right. It's time to discuss season nine, episode 20 of The Curse of Oak Island called The Hidden Truth. It's kind of a downer of an episode. Um, I hate to say that, but it really was. And you'll see what I mean by it as we get to the end here. Let's start over at lot eight. Now, last week, at least I think it was last week, we saw Gary pull out a couple of old metal artifacts over here. One was this chain-looking thing, which, if memory serves, uh, he thought was the bit off a horse's bridle. Uh, And then there was some other thing that I think the guys thought might have been the business end of a pickaxe. And I pointed out last week that they didn't follow up on either either of these things. And caution, that might mean nothing or mean that they didn't mean anything. But they did follow up on them here. So here we go. Sometimes you don't get it all in the same episode. And again, I think that goes back to trying to push stuff into different episodes and spread things out so we're not just staring at caissons going in the ground. Um, So here they are uh, this week in the Interpretive Center with blacksmithing expert Carmen Legg to have a look. I was checking to see if we saw Carmen's Corvette. I did not notice it anyway, be that as it may. First, he looks at the chain. And now what he says here was a little confusing to me because of the way I think it was presented to us, but I I think I got it by the end of all this. He first says that the chain was not made for strength, meaning it was not made to haul something very heavy, but instead was made to sort of contain stuff inside it, to wrap things around it, to hold together a bunch of something like logs. And he used the example of a boom chain. Now the show does a great job of describing what a boom chain is, so I'm not going to repeat all that here. But I think the part that got left out was in my mind when I read this, and tell me if you agree, Carmen wasn't saying that's what this chain is, he's saying that's an example of what it could be, of what a chain like this might be built for. Am I making sense? I think he was just using the boom chain as an example uh, rather than as that's exactly what this is, and which took the narration into this whole thing about naval defense systems and all that stuff which you saw. Carmen then talks about the uh, this end of a tool that we thought might be a pickaxe. I think the guys, um, I think it was this one that they thought was a pickaxe, but he says he thinks it's what's called a chinking tool. Now, chinking is the process of sealing wood planks together. So on a ship, you would put the, planks together, and then when you would use something like tar or or hemp, hemp mostly, to kind of push into the spaces in between the planks to seal it. You would also do this on log homes, right? Chinking is done in a couple of different applications. Um, Now, the narration makes a lot out of this, but it's hard to be excited by either of these two things. Uh, I mean, we cannot be sure either of them had a maritime application. Uh, We know that it's possible. And even if they did, They both seem to be pretty common tools to be found in an area like Mahome Bay, right? Um, Later on, Paul Troutman actually comes and brings a ground-penetrating radar device, which I'm sure is very expensive, over to Lot 8 with a couple of other members of the team to do a scan in this area uh, where they found, uh, on a previous scan, they had found a metal anomaly, a big metal anomaly up on the north end of the island. Now, a quick look at the GPR data shows two hits in the same spot, one below the other, one at five feet down, one at 20 feet down. Uh, I think that was right. They both looked like they were kind of squared off or at least had square edges of some kind, at least on this data, Uh, which certainly seems interesting to me. But as we all know by now, the team cannot just dig wherever they want. So they need to take this and apply for a permit with the government to dig and find out what this might be now it is interesting it's pointed out here that uh, there were no houses in this area and there never been as far as they know so to have something metal like that squared off underneath does seem worth exploring Um, but we need to kind of stay tuned to see if they actually get the permits to do this and whether or not that's even going to be this year or we're going to have to wait to next year to see this work done All right. The next area we want to discuss here, we're going to call the uh, Frog Island Shoal. Now, remember last week, a team came to the island to do an underwater magnetometer scan of the waters north of the island and found two compelling hits: one just north of Lot Eight, and then one between Oak Island and Frog Island, which is just north of the Money Pit area. If you're looking at the uh, the uh, the island from above, underwater archaeologist Lee Spence is back on the island. We saw him earlier this year. And he is in the war room with diver Tony Sampson to discuss these findings, uh, just a little bit more. Uh, Spence thinks these hits really seem to indicate a shipwreck. He seems very positive of that. So, with that in mind, the team heads out onto the bay on a barge here to uh, to let Sampson or it's, uh, yeah, Tony Sampson and, Spen- and Lee Spence um, drive dive down and get a closer look at these targets. They bring their own little magnetometer, which is sort a of glorified metal detector, really, with them to make sure that they're looking at the right spot as they dive through to find these hits. The problem is everything down there is so buried in mud and kelp that they can't really see anything unusual. I mean, they're getting these magnetometer hits, so this has got to be really frustrating because their detector is screaming at them, but there's nothing they can do because, once again, they don't have the permits, to do anything besides swim around and photograph. This is why nobody's really done a lot of offshore work because it's just difficult to get permission from the government to do it. What is even more deflating is when Spence says to the team, quote, I am absolutely convinced there is a shipwreck down there, but then quickly follows that up with, quote, they're never going to issue us a permit because it's buried and we can't see it. Which, basically means they won't be able to present the government with any kind of reasonable evidence to the point that it'll allow the government to issue them a permit to do some underwater excavation. So most likely, this whole thing, this whole scan, this whole dive is all for naught. And it's very deflating. Okay, I'm going to take another quick break here and come back and talk about yet another disappointing project, the money pit. I mean, this episode really was a downer. Okay, let's finish over at the Money Pit here. We see the continuation of the DH-82 caisson. This is the one that was situated close to the center of the Dunfield crater. Now, if you need a little refresher course on what that is and all this stuff, just go back and listen to last week's podcast if you haven't already. Um, I go through a lot of it there, so that's the best way to do that if you're not, not up to speed here. Rick points out how uh, Dunfield could have, and probably did, miss a lot of clues, clues they would really like to get a look at, not only because perhaps he just didn't go deep enough in the money pit to find what they thought was there, but also because he wasn't looking for anything but a treasure. Any clues about the money pit, like cribbing and who built what and where and when and all that, those sorts of things were just bulldozed out of his way and then bulldozed right back into the crater as backfill later on, or at least most of it was. The rest of it was left in these giant spoils piles, which we have seen them going through this year. And that begs the question, is this really the first time anyone went through these spoils piles? I mean... Dan not Blankenship never went through them at the, with a metal detector? That just seems weird to me. Anyway, I digress. Out of the hammer grab comes a uh, huge timber, really a section of a tree trunk, if that <laughs> is the best way to, to uh, describe it. Uh, it should be interesting to see if they can test that and come up with some of this you know, later on and get some better ideas of uh, what the dating on it is. Interesting. Anyway, later, the can goes down to 139 feet, and Rick notes that they're approaching the area where Dunfield never managed to reach. Soon, we see the oscillator starting to struggle to go down deeper, which should have been accompanied by sort of ominous music, as we've come to learn that this could mean the approaching of bedrock, which is exactly what happened at 153 feet down, which the narration points out is also, quote, the exact depth of the chapel vault. So am I the only one now who wonders if the chapel vault was just, in fact, bedrock and not actually a vault? I can't think of another explanation if I'm honest. Anyway, DH-82 comes to an end. It's another deflating and disappointing finish to a very expensive project. So the team then meets in the war room to discuss where to put the fourth and final can for this season. And it's Craig Tester who has the suggestion. He says that he thinks they should go east towards the head and shaft to a spot where the treasure hunter Irwin Hamilton dug and found a tunnel 150 feet down that they never explored because they assumed it was part of a booby trap tunnel system. Now, honestly, I've read about this, and I have to admit, this is not a spot I would pick. This is possibly a tunnel, but it just isn't compelling enough to me. But the team points out later that this is also a spot where this famous water testing found the precious metals in it, so at least that made me feel a little bit better about this choice. They decided to name the can DMT-2 after Craig's son, Drake, who passed away a few years back. So who was Irwin Irwin Hamilton, you might ask? And they did a good job explaining, but let's give a little bit more. Uh, And I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Hamilton was an engineer from New York. And in the 1930s, the end of the 1930s, he took over the uh, Oak Island treasure hunt from Gilbert Hedden. And what he did was he explored a lot of the areas that were explored before him. So he went a little deeper into the Hedden shaft and also the chapel shaft. And he really didn't find much except for some wood he thought might have been old enough to maybe be part of the original money pit structure. Now, in 1940, he wanted to go further into the head and shaft, and he explored all the way down to 170 feet before giving up with not much to show for it. But then in 1941, he went into the chapel shaft down to 167 feet um, where he hit bedrock. But then he drilled into the bedrock and started finding pieces of wood all the way down at 200 feet. So this is where the idea that whatever is down there might actually be below the bedrock. This is where that idea came from. And it makes you wonder now why the team is so quick to pull the plug once bedrock is hit. Hamilton did some other stuff too, but this was the beginning of World War II, and soon it became impossible for Hamilton to not only fund his work, but also get men to come and work on the island. So he gave up and really didn't have a whole lot to show for it. So the episode ends with the beginning of this new case on, DMT2. But I want to mention one thing here in this last scene at the money pit. Dr. Spooner shows up and mentions how while this can is being worked, he's going to be doing some soil testing to see if he can find the same precious metal results they got in the water samples from here last year. And that made me wonder, did they do that with the other three cans already? If so, what were the results? Why didn't we see that? Hmm, interesting thing to leave out. All right, that's it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, I'm DJing Wednesday afternoons from 2 to 5 p.m. on a radio station, WDVR-FM. You can find me hosting a show called the Bourbon Street Bistro from 2 to 4, playing the music in New Orleans, and then 4 to 5 doing a show called Island Vibes, do a lot of, like, tropical stuff, kind of vacation-y music. You can listen by going to WDVRFM.org or you can just tell... Alexa to turn on WDVR or if you're in uh, West Jersey or Eastern Pennsylvania, tune into 89.7 FM Wednesdays, 2 to 5 PM. Uh, also, uh, you can, don't forget, you can become a patron. If you think this show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. If you don't want to do that, you can help us out by, um, by leaving a one-time donation. The only way I can do that is through my Venmo account for my other job, which I'm a musician. So I have a Venmo account set up for tips and that kind of stuff. That's uh, at Dave McBride Music. Any you know any any kind of donation you want to leave you can you can do so. If you don't want if you do want to help us out but not with money, I appreciate that too. Please take the time give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Helps to get word out on the show and get more listeners to us. A big thank you to everyone who has left us a five star rating already. I really do appreciate it. Uh-huh. And also. Uh, Come and join us on Facebook and Twitter. Just put at Island into your uh, search bar. And if you have any questions or comments you have for me and you want to send them directly to me, you can do so either through the DMs of those two pages or you can go uh, the easiest way is via email, island at gmail.com. And just remember, if you do send me an email or a direct message, uh, I'll probably answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want me to read your message out loud here, just make a note of that. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.